This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 22 on our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 3rd of July. And what's on the menu this week, Leon? First of all, we're going to have a chat with an independent filmmaker in Sydney, a guy called Ben Allen, who makes films on an iPad and all other Apple technology. And so that's going to be fascinating. Indeed it is. He's going to talk about some of the financing problems that an independent producer has. And uh, we'll hear also from Clara Chong, who's his wife and uh, the writer director in the team. Well, that'll be terrific. And then we're going to have a chat with economist Stephen Kakoulis, and he's going to present us an overview of what's happening in the global economy. Yeah, a bit shaky, all of that. Absolutely. And not least what's happening in Greece at the moment. Now, let's listen to Ben Allen and Clara Chong. Ben Allen and Clara Chong run a film company called The Film Bakery, largely on account of where they operate, one of the places they operate from was a bakery in the 19th century. Ben, running a business in film in Australia can be pretty adventurous. Some say it's a bit like bungee jumping. I mean, you know, it takes courage to kick off, and the, but then the adrenaline rush keeps you at it. Is that reasonably like? I think that's a, it's a very accurate description, yes. It's, a, it's an exciting industry. And but certainly at times a challenging and and rapidly changing one. What about finance? I mean, every, everybody says making a movie can be risky financially, and you're doing you do a lot of commercial stuff, and and we've just seen some beautiful things that you've done, real style, and and very much your fingers print on it. <laughs> Thank you. It's your style, but you're now doing. One of the projects is uh, X was here, a full feature film made on Macs with Apple software, Blackmagic cameras, they're Australian, down in Melbourne, and Rode microphones, they're Australian, up in Sydney. So tell us about X was here for a start. Yeah, so uh, well, Clara can probably answer that better than, than I can. Clara's being the writer-director, <laughs> yeah. I think, is that right? That's right, yes. I mean, X was here, started, um, we started development about six years ago, and that was on the back of another feature we've been working on for nine years. And um, we just about got up and then the GFC hit. So that kind of ended that particular <laughs> film. Yeah. We'll probably and get so, back to it one day, but yeah, it'll be yeah. quite a substantial rewrite. Yes. And so, but a lot of the research we did for that particular film um, gave genesis to the idea of the generations. And because, you know, we're Generation X, we want to look at, you know, from the point of view of Generation X. Um, but yeah, it was very much a... Um, you know, it, it, people, you start talking to people about generations and everyone's got something to say, you know, everyone's got an opinion and everyone's like, oh my God, yes, generation such and such, you know, can't understand them, can't stand them, but oh, you know, it's it's endless. Yeah, there's nothing as angry as a teenager, is there? <laughs> <laughs> or a <No>. five-year-old. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's right. To do that, I mean, you obviously would need a fair amount of money, but your budget, I believe, is probably, well, by my standards, would be generous, but it's probably pretty tight for making a full-length movie. And that's one of the... The, the reasons that we're we're really pushing the technology um, is to be able to get uh, something of a, a really high international standard um, on an Australian budget, and um, and the wonderful thing is that the, the technology is there now. And I think we've learned over the years with so many projects that you know we've you know we've done this before in small form, and that's how you test things out. You know, something happens like you know um, it, it's all the skills that you le- also learn along the way. We didn't set out to do all our sound design, do all our mixing 
grading, um, do all our color grading. Uh, we worked with you know people at the top of their game. But you learn, and then so and so is not available, and then a budget's small, so you kind of test the waters, and it, it kind of goes from there. So it's kind of very accidental the way we got into it. But the more that we took on as far as skills um, and technology. Um, goes the more we realize actually we've got more creative control this way and we're able to finesse to a level that we would never have done been able to you know do before on projects so that's kind of i guess how that happened mm. and just, and that's kind of evolved as the technology's evolved exactly, over the last yeah. kind of 10 years that's right i mean to so, take an iphone for example I, I know that you do some of the background sound recorded on an iphone transfer it to the mac yeah and it works superbly well um, the, the quality that you can get out of, particularly with um, the, the little road add-on, mm. the quality is really amazing and up there with um, you know, full-size microphones and recorders if, in the right circumstance. Mm. And so to have that kind of flexibility, it, what it means is you can do more. You can do more of those recordings, and it's the same with being hands-on with um, with sound mixing and color grading and all of these aspects where you can uh, you can go in and finesse details to an extent that you probably wouldn't be able to do unless you had kind of a, a limitless budget in a in a full-size facility. But it's like when you're saying recording with the iPhone, you can literally be in the middle of an edit and go, "Oh, actually, that particular shot needs a little bit more foley or something," and we're able to instantly be able to you know slot that in. We've got the the mics right there. Well, yeah, we had an instance on that, that video that we just showed you where um, Clara wanted um, a sound effect of cars crossing uh, to go with the, the pictures. And it was easier to, to go out and record that than it was to go looking through a library and find it. Yeah, and it's more, I mean, Sydney makes a different noise from Melbourne in a way, doesn't it? It does, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's um, and you, you don't consciously notice those things, but they, um, they do affect the audience and they do affect um, how the audience reacts to oh, things. Oh, definitely. For example, if you are in Melbourne, you've got the tram noises, which you would not hear here. So you have a tram noise in the middle of traffic in Sydney. They're going, ah, oh, you know, you don't, they might not be able to pinpoint that exact sound as being alien, but... But um, something that doesn't something quite feel... Wrong, especially yeah. when they go ding, ding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now the risk in all of this is, well, now let's go back to your sort of, is it bread and butter stuff? Is yeah. the commercial videos you do. Is there a fair amount of that around enough to keep you going and to invest in your feature film? Yeah. So we, I mean, we've self funded the development of this film over the last six years and um, and that's a, a product of doing this bread and butter work that we, we do. We used to do um, a, um, kind of before the film bakery we used to do a lot of um, TV commercials bigger um, national TV commercials with the, the you know the full size crew and the um, going into big facilities big to yeah you know, half a dozen trucks full, yeah. full of equipment and um, and we both enjoyed that I think. that it, Oh we, definitely we, you know you get to tr- try out new toys all the time and that's always fun and you've got the camera of a big crew, hair and makeup, etc. It's all it's all good. But you've also got to feed them, don't you? It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's an overhead expense. And uh, it was it was really we started experimenting with smaller, very self-contained workflow, particularly with post-production. And again, it wasn't because we didn't like going into the big facilities. It's it, it is fun doing that stuff. Yeah. Um, and we've got many good friends, um, facilities who we love working with. But it's just it's that I, I think any creative person wants to have total control. Yeah. of what they're doing. So being able to be hands-on with it enables you to, to have that level of control 
and also to be able to do uh, projects economically enough that you can then have creative freedom on that side as well. Video, the, the image, the moving image is now, one would guess, a principal means of communication for a company, a school, a government, whatever. Yeah. So that, that side of the business must be growing. Yeah, it's. I think it's becoming, um, I heard a statistic recently that video makes up 80% of the traffic on the web um, and it's huge and it's a very effective way of communicating. Well, it's concise, you know, you're seeing, you're hearing and you're feeling at the same time and I don't think anything else will give you that same sense of um, involvement. But it's a bit fragmented now as well, isn't it, in the sense that there's YouTube and there's all these other things on the internet yep. claiming people's time. Yes, so in terms of investment of intellect and talent and money, is it getting tougher? It's, it's, it's yes two-sided, no. yeah. yeah, because definitely there's, there is more competition for people's eyeballs. They're the- I think so. I think also because what, you, know, you also learn your, your strengths, and I guess for us it's the fact that with each project, um, because we, we, we tend to like working anywhere from small to sort of medium, I guess, is our comfort range, but uh, we handcraft every element of that. So that's how we retain creative control there, and that's what ultimately, I think, because there's so few players from the idea straight through to the end of post-production that, um, you know, the clients are... We haven't had an unhappy client so far, fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, your create. I mean, you've been... In, how long have you been in the business, you two? Combined, I think, 35, yeah, I mean, 30. I've, I've, I've never done anything else. Yeah, no. no. So, 33 decades or yeah. something <laughs> of experience yes. and doing things with certain artistry. I mean, Clara, you weren't always in video. Where, where did you get this sense of artistry and whatnot that your product shows? Well, you know, I come from a very academic family, so I'm the black sheep being the film industry. I got a lot of you know, flack for it early what's, what's on. What's <laughs> the, the translation of the Japanese phrase? Uh, it's um, water business, mizushobai. Um, and, you know, I was always told by my mum, you it's know, not solid. what are you <laughs> no. doing, you know, when are you going to grow out of this? Um, and it took, I think it was about eight, eight or nine years before she finally came and saw me as I got my um, training in Tokyo before I went to New York. And, um, and, you know, she saw me on set and finally, you know, she's like, okay, I get it. You know, there's something in you that comes alive. And the thing is, it's taken until now, I think for both of us to realize that okay you've got to have that certain arrogance in you in you know in your 20s you've got to think like i can do anything you know be anyone which is why that's gen y now gen y sort of cusp gen z but then there comes a point where you know then you know you start getting a little bit more fearful and then you get to a point where you realize oh my god actually you know I'm starting to get good at this, you know. I'm starting to say, okay, I can do that and that will happen. Whereas before it's all like guesswork. Yeah. And it's experience, it really is. And I think that's why this generational story came about as well. It's the fact that Generation X are finally at the age where, you know what, we're starting to get good at what we do. <laughs> so, you know, we, it should be our time is kind of the story. Yeah. But it's, you know, it, it's different. It's that intergenerational theft. Is that the, the terminology that they <laughs> use now? It, it's a really fascinating um, concept that is playing out in our workforce um, everywhere in any industry. Ben, where did you begin? You were always a cameraman, were you? Pretty much. I, yeah, well, I, um, I did do a couple of years um, in radio before I could get a job at a TV station. But basically, my relationship with cameras started when my dad brought home a video camera when I was 10 years old. And it wasn't, I don't think I ever actually seriously thought about doing anything else. And um, so I made wedding videos all through high school and figured out if you hired a camera to do a wedding video on the Saturday, you, you had it for the whole weekend because they weren't open on Sunday. So you could go and do a short film on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> saving money. It went money. from there, yeah. It went from there. <laughs> yeah. So if you were talking to a teenager, late teenager, early 20s, and he had a kind of an itch like Ben had, and he had, I mean, these days you can use and make a movie on an iPad or an iPhone. So that's not too hard. And iMovie's there. So there's no setup cost really, but would you? It's so accessible. That's it's, yeah. But would would you say go for it or take care? I, I think um, uh, th- there's a, a great quote um, from uh, Robert Rodriguez, the, the director, who's another very hands-on filmmaker. And he said, everybody has at least 12 bad films in them. Get them out of your system as quickly as possible. Go do them. <laughs> ben and uh, Clara, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thanks, thank Gary. You, Gary. Well, there you go, Leon. If you want to live dangerously, start making a movie. That's right. They really live on the edge, don't they? They do indeed. And now Stephen Kukoulos. So what do you see happening with Greece? I think uh, the rolling rescue packages are going to continue. There'll be tough negotiations from both sides of the the ledger. The Greeks clearly don't want to impose any more hardship onto an already depressed economy, uh, whereas the holders of the financial purse strings are going to be demanding that they do more to try to improve their budget, to reduce their debt level accumulation. Uh, and this sort of, as I said, rolling compromise on um, each monthly repayment of interest uh, on their debts is going to continue for a long time. So I think we're going to see more of the same for many, many more months, if not, if not years. Do you see Greece leaving the Eurozone? No. Um, while one part of me would say that that's the obvious solution, just let Greece default, leave the Eurozone, have a real jolt to its economy from a currency 50, 50%, 60, 70% fall on its currency, and of course, therefore not being able to tap capital markets for another five or 10 years. Yes, it, it could be the way to go, but the vested interests uh, throughout Europe, and even within Greece itself, want to wanted to stay in the Eurozone. It's sort of part of the fabric of how the Eurozone was put together, both uh, from a strategic position but also from an economic position. So I suspect it won't leave, even though there can be a very good case made for it to, to leave sometime sooner rather than later. Maybe it should have left years ago. But, uh, I mean, the reality is the low euro is helping German companies like Volkswagen, Siemens, Bosch, and Germany is a very export-driven economy. So, in a sense, it suits their agenda to have Greece there, doesn't it? Because it keeps the euro low. Yeah, it does. And, and uh, even um, in France and Spain, uh, you know, uh, admittedly from a very, very low uh, recession, there's better economic news just trickling out of the Eurozone. Remember that Greece is only you know, 2% of the Eurozone GDP, so in a sense it's a small part of the overall picture, but it's having a big impact on sentiment uh, in markets, and the euro remains very weak. Um, and as you've qu- quite rightly point out, point out, those companies, particularly in Germany, but also in some of the other economies, are getting a bit of a free kick. And um, that competitive boost from an undervalued euro is allowing them to get some sort of uh, export traction, remembering too that the US economy is looking a little bit better and China seems to have found a base in terms of its economic growth. So the world economy has got a slightly better tone to it than, say, three to six months ago. And with a low euro, that's helping the eurozone economies in general um, maintain their export focus, with obviously Germany being the big winner in this. Where do you see the US economy heading? I mean, the figures seem to be encouraging. 
Yeah, they are encouraging. Obviously, we had the first quarter GDP numbers, which were negative and obviously driven by weather and things like that. But the, but the other broader economic indicators, the employment momentum, some of the confidence measures, housing, these sorts of other uh, more frequent economic updates, updates not always impacted by the weather, are looking, are looking pretty good. Um, you know, obviously, we've got the Fed contemplating the timing of its first rate hike. Yeah, they, they're going to look at the data like all of us are to see when that will be delivered. But you know, there, there would be no surprise that come the end of this year or certainly in the first half of next year, we have an interest rate rise or two as a sign that the US economy is looking better, that it's got some traction. You know, we see this unemployment rate, which is currently around about 5.5%, you know, maybe even ticking down towards 5% over the next 6 to 12 months. And that would be a sign that while there's still problems in the economy and the Fed's got to unwind its balance sheet and normalise interest rates, whatever that means at the moment, but you know there, there are more encouraging signs than there are discouraging signs. So yeah, I'm a little optimistic about the US being a, being one of the global drivers over the next 12 months. Uh, but that would mean if the Fed raises interest rates, it would see the a weakening in the Aussie dollar, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, and I think that's what the RBA here is hoping and has been hoping for some time that, you know... Obviously, we, we all want a strong U.S. economy. It's, it's roughly a quarter of all GDP. And so when it grows, it tends to drag a lot of other people with it. But from a currency perspective, you know, if, if they are in a position to hike interest rates, uh, as we discussed, and here in Australia we're on hold, or maybe even there's a prospect of another rate cut if our, uh, if our subdued economy continues to uh, continue, then all of a sudden that interest rate gap closes even further. Our Aussie dollar gets a bit of a kick, and um, it's something that the RBA has wanted, and certainly, certainly evident in some of the other um, uh, non-mining exports in recent times. You know, tourism is being is very strong at the moment. We've got education exports picking up. So, you know, a lower dollar is already helping. If we were to fall to say say seventy cents to roughly another ten percent fall in the currency, you know, the economy would get an extra boost outside the mining and uh, resources part. Which would mean the Fed would be doing the heavy lifting for the RBO. Yes, in a way, just as it sort of hurts when it was cutting rates to zero and, and the currency here was at parity, the RBA was probably tearing its hair out, sort of thinking this overvalued exchange rate, what do we do? So, you know, as we always have with a floating uh, exchange rate, we do get swings and roundabouts. And I think if we were to see the Fed move to the, to the rate hiking cycle and we're on hold or even cutting here in Australia, then of course that's the... That's the free kick, if you like, for the Australian economy. And, that, you know, it does provide a, a significant boost, this lower exchange rate. Which would mean that the RBA would not cut interest rates further. Well, if that, yes, it's a chicken and egg one there, which happens first. If the Aussie were to fall below 75 quickly and then into the low 70s, then I think the RBA would be very, very happy to sit tight and uh, let that happen. But, you know, again, it's a thorny question of, you know, maybe we need the RBA to cut when the Fed's talking about hiking just to get that extra... 5% depreciation into the into the very low 70 cent region. So do you see the RBA cutting further? Not yet. Um, our economy is mixed. You know, we've still got this persistent uncertainty, if you like, with the economy that you know, for every good bit of news, say, on housing construction or a good uh, reading on the employment numbers, we get a disappointing number on retail sales or, you know, we get a big fall in uh, uh, business investment numbers. So we, we've got this really... Uh, multi-speed economy in each segment of it, but also geographically as well. We're seeing you know, New South Wales and Sydney and Melbourne doing pretty well too because the house prices are boosting them. You know, Perth, there's some problems and WA is a bit weaker. So you've got this, again, a change in the, in the structure of who's strong and who's weak. But the bottom line is the economy, you know, I think RBA is right at this stage that we're more likely to see real GDP nearer two and a half, something like that, so below trend for the next year and hopefully hopefully a stronger US, a lower Aussie dollar does help it to kick up um, towards the end of 2015 and into 2016. And where do you see China? 
fascinating. I mean, because the numbers there yeah. are pretty worrying. They, they are concerning. Or having said that, some of these uh, purchasing manager index numbers just in recent times have been stabilising. Again, they're not strong, don't get me wrong, but they stabilise at this lower level. And, and uh, yeah, the authorities there are increasingly looking to a, to a bottomy of growth. And, in fact, if you look at some of the other uh, house price indicators in China, the number of cities where prices are falling has sort of started to fade a bit. Yeah, so that fall in property prices in China, while it was a huge threat to the Chinese economy, and still is, yeah, again, there's signs of stability just starting to emerge there. China's looking a little bit better. And again, if you look at the broad commodity prices as a measure of how well the Chinese economy is going, the fact that we've got iron ore at around about $60 a tonne, we've had some consolidation in other base metal prices over the last few weeks. Again, it's only a few weeks or a month or two of data, but you know, it's encouraging to see those very, very sharp falls that we saw in the first few months of this year starting to bottom out and, in fact, start to pick up a little bit. So where do you see the economy, the global economy tracking over the next 12 months? Yeah, it, it's looking OK. Um, again, I don't, I don't want to be looking uh, at the world economy through rose-coloured glasses, but if you look at the big parts, the Eurozone, a little bit better, US, a little bit better, China, probably bottoming out. And you've got um, you know, Japan still being Japan, if you like, so neither helping nor hindering at the moment. But it's sort of stable. The Nikkei is very, very strong. So maybe that will give uh, the, the Japanese consumers a bit of a wealth effect and some uh, encouragement to spend. So you add it all up, and again, it's, it's not a strong performance, uh, but we've got better news than we had three to six months ago in the world economy. So I'm a little bit hopeful that you know by this time next year, world GDP, global GDP, will be somewhat near three and three quarters or 4%, whereas in the last 12 months it's been near three and a quarter to three and a half percent. So a slight step up in, in the rate of economic growth. And Australia's growing at about 2.3%. Uh, the forecasts are for it to grow at about 3% next year. Where do you see that? Yeah, that'll be good to see. Again, we've, we, we just mentioned some of the conflicting news on, on our local economy, but obviously interest rates are very stimulatory. There is a positive wealth effect from uh, the housing boom that's going on, uh, particularly in Sydney and, and Melbourne. Uh, we've got a big drag from CapEx. So, look, I, I think... More than you know, a break above three percent GDP or a break below two percent GDP, it's going to be more of the same: two and a half percent for real growth, plus or minus a small amount, just depending on some of the quirkiness that we're seeing in our inventories numbers and the like. One thing that you know is, is curious still will be what will happen to government investment, so infrastructure spending. You know, we've seen a couple of state budgets in the last uh, few weeks. New South Wales was just recently. Yeah, you know, there is a some decisions to sort of. I won't say fast track, but to certainly a, a, announce some infrastructure spending. Exactly how quickly that happens could have a quite important impact on bottom line GDP if they bring forward the starting date of some of that expenditure. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what do you think about that, Leon? Are, you, are we frightened screechless? No, oh, well, you know, he's saying there's some promising signs in Europe and America, but uh, the big issue, of course, is what's going to happen with Greece. Absolutely, and, and I don't know that the sage on the top of any mountain has got the faintest idea at the moment. That's right. It's just all hanging there in the cloud of mist. Absolutely. So now the news. Well, Gary, first of all, it was an extraordinary day yesterday when Greece became the first advanced economy to default on loans from the International Monetary Fund after European finance chiefs shut down their last-minute request for emergency financial aid. Only then did we see Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras coming back with a letter saying he was ready to accept almost all of a creditor's austerity conditions in return for a third bailout worth 
billion euro. That's about 42 billion Aussie. Yeah, which is a decent old uh, wallet full. Absolutely. It? Now, in a letter to the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, European Central Bank President Mario Draghi, and International Monetary Fund Managing Director Christine Lagarde, Cyprus signalled there were still some sticking points remaining on pensions and tax discounts to Greek islands, but his new letter actually marked a serious climb down from his last position, and that suggested he is yielding because his country is buckling under capital controls with its banks shut down. Now, Greece missed a payment to the IMF on Tuesday, and it's heading for a July the 5th referendum called by Cyprus on austerity as a condition for aid. His proposal for overhauls and budget cuts was dismissed by European officials as insufficient. The bottom line is that there's been a lot of bad blood. I mean, this week's turmoil included the closure of green banks, the expiration of the bailout program, and the decision to call a referendum. And that's changed the circumstances too much for them to sit down and talk to him. You, you can't just simply sit down and talk after that. And the bottom line, in fact, is that uh, Greece really is just a mendicant nation now and is looking to Europe to uh, give it the money to survive. It's not going to pay anything. Well, back. Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, says Germany will only discuss a new bailout request only after the referendum's taken place or if Greece has called it off. Now, Cyprus is saying there's no way he's calling it off and he's uh, actually calling on the Greeks to vote no. Now, this is the interesting part, Gary. The European Central Bank is the one that keeps funding the Greek banks. That's right. Now, Mario Draghi, the head of the European Central Bank, I remember three years ago declared he would do whatever it takes to keep the euro together. And he has been strangely silent on all of this. Yes, he has. And the European Central Bank is still funding the Greek banks. And, and the other issue, too, is that technically it's not a default because according to the ratings agencies, you can only default if you owe money to a private sector agency. And the IMF is not a private sector agency. No, that's right. But then somebody's got to fund the IMF and somebody's got to fund the European Central Bank. And it looks to me as if the, the Germans, are, uh, who are the main funders, are getting pretty sick of it. Well, yes, but if Greece leaves the euro, the Germans will be left paying a big bill, and that's not going to be very good for Angela Merkel. Yeah, but they're not going to get it back anyway, so what are they worrying about? So, well, it's going to be a huge issue. There's no way Greece can fork out a couple of hundred no, euro. No, look, the whole thing has been very badly handled. And I think from the very beginning, because in, certainly in my view, and I'm not alone in this, the euro was a very bad idea from the beginning. Well, at least it stopped them killing each other, and they, they've been conducting wars since the fall of the Roman Empire. Well, yeah, that's right. But it was good sport at the time. <laughs> that's right. Now, yeah. now, to a place that will really affect Australia, the Chinese stock market plunged last week, and the People's Bank of China chopped interest rates by 25 basis points. That's its fourth cut since November. And one of the repercussions from the Chinese event is the fall in the iron ore price, which has caused BHP and Rio Tinto shares to be marked back sharply in London. And the benchmark interest rate in China was reduced to 4.85% and the deposit rate to 2% from Sunday. And the bank has cut interest rates to stimulate activity and investment, with China's economic slowdown now in full swing, with GDP expanding at 7.4% in 2014. That's the lowest rate in 24 years. Now, the interest rate cuts so far have had little impact. Domestic demand remains subdued. Manufacturing continues to contract and there's been a reduction in foreign trade. At the same time, the uh, Shanghai Composite Index has collapsed. It actually fell 5% yesterday. Very, very major. 
And at the same time, the World Bank has issued a report saying that China has to reform its financial system because the government basically owns all the assets. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, the stock market to some degree, though, was really just Chinese gambling because of the fall in the housing values. Well, it was it all was. margin lending. Yeah. So it's all funded by debt. And that's very, very dangerous. Now, at the same time, weak and uncertain demand from China seen the Federal Department of Industry and Science in Australia cutting its price forecast for iron ore in 2015 by 10% to something like US$54.40 a tonne, which is well below the $61.29 iron ore was fetching on Monday night. And many analysts are predicting even more dramatic falls. City is forecasting iron ore to fall to $48 a tonne in the third quarter and $38 in the fourth quarter. Capital Economics has forecasted falling to in the, into the 30s in the second half in 2015 before ending the year at $45 US. And in its report, the department said steel conditions were weighing on iron ore prices in the short term and housing construction in China remained a key area of uncertainty. Now, the bottom line is that China accounts for approximately 69% of the world trade in iron ore. Which is a bit ominous for us, isn't it? Absolutely. At the same time, China's Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank has been officially opened for business following a signing ceremony in Beijing during the week and Joe Hockey was there at the Great Hall of the People signing it. And Australia was actually the first country to sign the Articles Association creating its legal framework and it was followed by 49 others. Australia, UK, Germany and South Korea are among the founding members but Japan and the US opposed the AIIB and remain the most prominent countries not to join. And I, I think, Gary, this bank is actually a diplomatic and economic coup for China because it holds 30.34% in the stake in the AIIB, which makes it the largest shareholder, and it has authorised capital of $50 billion, which will eventually be raised $100 billion, and it's going to fund Chinese companies to build ports and cities outside of China. And what that will do, Gary, will it will build China's influence through the region. But they will need to move, do that carefully. The politics of that very complicated. Well, that's why the US and Japan have opposed it. Yep. Other pieces of news, uh, consumer confidence has hit its highest level in 18 months, driven by improved outlook for jobs market. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index rose 2% to 116.3 in the week to June 28. That's its best result since January 2014. And there was a 5.7% lift in respondents' views about economic conditions over the next 12 months and a 4.6% increase in the five-year outlook on the other side of ledger. Australia's manufacturing sector contracted sharply in June after expanding for the first time in six months in May. The Australian Industry Group's performance of manufacturing index dropped 8.1 points to 44.2 in June. That's the lowest reading since July 2013 and it's below the 50 mark, which means it's seriously contracting. Yeah, I mean, that's a very serious drop at 44. And it's going to mean a lot of, a lot more jobs are going to be lost. Yeah. Now, according to BIS Shrapnel, the housing booming housing market is set to slow down in 2017 and it says house prices are likely to slip then and it will probably be the result of fears about an increase in interest rates and ongoing problems with affordability. But it won't be a crash. It says it's just a moderation, similar to what was experienced in 2011-12 when there was a fall of 10%. And it says that by 2018, the median house price in Sydney will be only 2% higher than it is today. And Melbourne house prices will be just up 4%. And it also says the sector is also going to be weakened by a slowdown in net overseas migration, which has plunged from 235,700 people in 2012-13 to about 184,000 
during the 2014 calendar year. And I might add that this reduction in migrants has been most acutely experienced in the mining boom states of Western Australia, Queensland and Northern Territory. Now, we had a report from the Bank for International Settlements. That's the bank, that's the central bank of all banks. It said that near zero interest rates could become chronic in the world's major economies. The BIS argues that low interest rates aimed at stimulating growth in short term may actually do the opposite over longer periods. It's a cheap money, just encourages more debt, it creates financial booms and busts, and that leaves lasting scars on an economy. If you're getting zero interest rates, why invest in, uh, why put your money in a bank? Now, some interesting corporate news to finish it off with, Gary. First, Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis International has swooped on Australian drug developer Spinifex Pharma for US $200 and it will also commit an additional $500 US in milestone payments. Now, Spinifex has been developing the experimental neuropathic pain drug EMA401, which has shown positive results in clinical trials for treating post-herpetic neuralgia, which is a painful condition people get after shingles. Tell me about it. Now, it was spun out of the University of Queensland in 2005, and it's backed by venture capital groups including Novo IS, Canine Partners, GBS Venture Partners, Brandon Capital Partners, Uniseed, and of course, the University of Queensland. And it's attracted $70 million in venture capital. So that's going to be interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Now, Asiano has received a conditional takeover proposal from Canada's Brookfield Asset Management that's going to value the port rail company at something like $9 billion, which is actually quite a premium because last week it was valued at about $6 billion. Brookfield wants to buy 100% of Asiano's stock at $9.05 a share, and the offer represents, uh, as I said, a 36% premium. And Asiano says it, said it was in the interest of its shareholders to engage further with Brookfield to try to do some sort of deal. That proposed takeover is going to include Patrick and Pacific National Rail Freight Business, and also include Asiano's $3 billion in debt. Yeah, so it's pretty big offer. And finally, uh, Warren Buffett has expanded in the Asia-Pacific and into Australian health insurance, Gary. His Berkshire Hathaway specialty insurance company received a licence to enter the New Zealand insurance market and it's flagging its entry into Australian healthcare underwriting. Very interesting. And Buffett's a smart man. So they're going to be offering property, casualty and executive and professional lines of insurance for medical practices and facilities. And the company's appointed, appointed Tony Bainbridge, most recently regional head of healthcare, Asia Pacific, at uh, international insurer AIG to lead the effort. And he's going to be based in Melbourne. And it said it had received its license from New Zealand Central Bank and will be underwriting property and casual, casualty insurance through a new office in Auckland. Well, the insurance industry is pretty competitive and this really going to put a spike into it, isn't well, it? Well, it's going to be very interesting to see. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. And uh, next week we're going to be talking to Mark McDonald and Mike Wick from Appster. Yeah, very interesting outfit. This is um, they basically entrepreneurs who find other entrepreneurs and give them a hand. Well, that's going to be a fascinating interview. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.